Good day, folks, and thank you for uh, joining in another edition of The Religious Lie, and I appreciate it. The last time we talked about uh, The Religious Lie, exactly what it was and how it uh, came about in the Garden of Eden, and it was one of the great sting operations that we have ever seen recorded, and as we look at it today, I'm hoping that I can relate it to how it applies to us now how the same sting is still going on. Nothing changes. The enemy uses the same plan over and over. He doesn't have any creativity. He just masquerades the same deceitful, diabolical strategy. And unfortunately, the world keeps dancing to his tune. But to look at it, what is a sting first and foremost? It's a, it's a carefully planned operation. It involves deception, a hustle, some kind of swindle. And every sting will have a clever con. In this case, we're looking at a serpent. It's going to have a mark, which in this case is Adam and Eve, and some kind of a real subtle strategy that lures the prey into becoming a willing accomplice. He doesn't do it because he's forced to do it. He actually, through the deception, does it because he wants to. And that deception must be so discreet that the mark will readily relinquish all his possessions under the illusion that he's going to gain even more. His pride gets massaged in such a manner that he feels foolish not to pursue the prize that's being offered. The con will come right into the environment of his mark. He will always find out what's nearest and dearest to his heart. And then he's going to figure out, how do I turn that strength into some kind of an exploitable weakness. And so how did it happen this time? Well, for the sting to work, Adam's got to be able to view all that he possessed, all that God gave him, from an entirely different perspective. If Adam and Eve alter their outlook on what constitutes their happiness and success, then their soul's going to become unsettled, and then they're going to question God and the roles that he's given them. If God can be perceived to be some kind of a restrictor rather than a blesser, then the roles they have are going to be reversed. They'd stop serving God and attempt to be a God unto themselves. And by the way, that's what the religious lie does. It always makes God out to be the one that's restricting rather than the one that's the blesser. I mean, God can certainly correct us, but before he ever does that, he loves us. And any correction he does is done in love, first and foremost. And despite all the blessings that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden, he never intended for their prosperity to be defined by some kind of earthly riches or some royal rule that he gave them. Truth is, when Adam and Eve were created, they had no idea of what prosperity even was. They were in a garden that God had given them, but they knew, well, God gave us this. This is really his, and he's called us to be stewards. And the contentment that they had inside in their soul, well, it surpassed any need they would ever even have for material wealth. They would live day by day as just stewards of the gifts that God gave them. Seeking for power and wealth. What has that done? It's been proven to be man's demise. And why would it be man's demise? Because the con man in this whole story is the one that had all the power and all the wealth initially. 
Uh, we call him Lucifer, the devil. Jesus called him Satan. He was once the highest of all God's creations. He was right out. He was, God was number one. He was number two. He had all the power. And it says, as you read the scriptures, that he was walking among the precious stones. He had fame and he had fortune. And how did that work out for him? What did it cause him to do? Reject God and try a foolish coup against God to usurp his authority. Fame and fortune are the very things that we shouldn't be pursuing because it certainly isn't what Christ pursued. And when we seek fame and fortune, who are we really following? I mean, God can bless us, and he does bless us. But to pursue fame and fortune is to follow the con man. The Apostle John, he wrote a little short line in Scripture. It says, Beloved, he's talking to us, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health. And then he adds, But even as your soul prospers, the inner you, your soul. He was looking at prosperity there first before it ever came in the outside. Soul prosperity that's a novel idea. The soul is the core of who you are, prospering. How? With the presence and power of God. The inner us, finding the fulfillment, meaning, and purpose that we were all created to enjoy. <clears throat> is that the kind of prosperity we're following today? <clears throat> Excuse me. It is certainly not the kind that's marketed to the masses. The deceiver has duped us, and we seek prosperity on the outside, and what happens? It leaves us empty and void in the inside. When we fail to follow God's ordained path to prosperity, what happens? Well, we fall from being fruitful to lifeless, from being replenished to diminished, from dominion to domination. He, the con man promises Adam and Eve, follow me, do what I say, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. How'd that work out? Instead of health, they had death. Instead of wealth, they were banished from the garden. Instead of wise, they became full of sheer, I mean, full of shame and fear. So let's continue to look at the sting. God commanded them, you ought to eat from every tree in the garden you want, but I do not want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from that one, you're surely going to die. So the two trees are placed strategically in the midst of Eden as a statement of their utmost importance to the first couple. God was to be central to everything pertaining to their life and their well-being. So what's the tree of life about? Well, it stands as a testimony that God is our creator and our sustainer of life. But what about the other tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That tree is about a testimony to the lordship and supremacy of God. He's going to be the source of all truth, and God and God alone is going to determine for man what's good and what's evil. God was going to be the final and only authority on all matters of morality. If man eats the forbidden, forbidden fruit, he rejects the rule of God and becomes a god unto himself. He's then going to chart his own course and he's going to determine a variety of moral standards by which he and others must live. 
And again, we've mentioned over and over the religious lie, and that's exactly what religion, and when I say religion, I'm separating that from a true relationship with God. I'm talking about man-made, organized, religious. And what happens is man then starts to dictate man the morals and ethics that he lives by instead of allowing God to do it. And what do we do when we do that? Loopholes better abound because we constantly got to adjust our moral code because we're in a fallen nature. And how do we deal with a good guilty conscience? Well, we keep adjusting the laws and we keep adding and adding and adding them. And in the process, we're not eating from the tree of life. We're not having abundant life. Ever since his fall, man has struggled with the fruit of these two trees. Through the advancements of both science and technology, we've gone to great lengths to dispel God as our creator and to refute his authority over our morality. When the principles of the two trees are not central to man, then God's no longer sovereign. And what are we left to do? Wander aimlessly through life with really no moral compass and no access to the tree of life that our souls so desperately need. And watch the news every night and you'll find out what kind of chaos ensues when man foolishly lives outside the authority of God. The Bible tells us that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And that's all the scripture tells us at that point about him. The stage is set for the sting and how the con's going to unfold. Cutting to the chase, we're just simply told that the enemy has entered the midst of the garden. Who is he? Why is he allowed to pray in the paradise? We don't even get told at this point. All we know is that he's a crafty snake and subtlety is his weapon of mass destruction. What does it mean to be subtle? It means you're clever, you're indiscreet, you're never displaying your real pleasure, not obvious with your intent. Subtlety and deceit, they're close cousins. They're related by their purpose. What are they going to do? Distort the truth and mislead. An element of truth is always necessary as bait to lure the mark. And that's why you'll see so many half-truths today, especially in religious, political circles. They tell a lot of half-truths because that has to be there in order for people to follow. So it tells us a snake. Why a snake? What's significant about a serpent? Like man, the snake was created on the sixth day and everything God created every day was deemed very good. So there's nothing in and of itself that's harmful about a snake. Quite frankly, actually, snakes are helpful in a garden. I have tomato plants that I grow in my backyard and there's a black snake that hides in the backyard. Every time I see him, I freak out. But anyway, he's actually good. He acts as kind of a bouncer. He gets rid of all the pests and everything else that are going to destroy my tomatoes. Left alone, a snake poses no threat. They'll find places to hide, and they'll run whenever they feel threatened. So Adam and Eve were given dominion over them. They would have been perfectly comfortable in their presence. 
To them, the serpent would be viewed more as a friend than a foe. The average everyday variety snake would never have fooled Eve and would never have fooled Adam. But what if the snake wasn't acting alone? What if the real enemy lurked behind the scenes and he was empowering the snake to do his bidding? You see, that's the way the sting worked back then, and that's the way deception often works even today. The true enemy never shows his face. He's content to hide in the shadows, and he uses others as puppets in his power play. Now, we're going to talk more and more about what happened in the garden, but I said I wanted to try to relate that to what's taking place today. Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the con man. What voices are we listening today? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So what's the voice that we're supposed to be listening to? The voice of Jesus. Are we listening to the one who offers us the tree of life? Or are we listening to voices today that eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Just as the serpent was used as a voice in the garden, do you think maybe there's those today that are being used in the same way, that they're just prophets of the beast that wants to rule over us? Many of us today will watch the mainstream media, and I don't care what side you're on, that doesn't matter whether you watch CNN or Fox. They give the illusion that they all have different opinions. But do you think maybe it's the same agenda? Because you see, they're all owned by the same billionaire elitist. They're all owned by the one, like in the garden, the one behind the serpent. They're all owned by the same billionaire elitist that have only one plan in mind. I really don't think the plan is about we the people. The purpose is to divide us and conquer us, just like the plan was from the beginning. They're a sideshow, a distraction, like an illusionist uses. So you don't perceive the sting, the trick, the magic that you're being subjected to. In the mainstream media today, they're only allowed to speak what is, found, what is framed by the serpent charmers. And the fact is, many of them are leaving today. I can't remember the name of the woman. She was a major executive in one of the networks. And she left recently, and she said, because it's, it's, it's all pointless. We're not journalists anymore. We can only say what they tell us to say, and we have to frame everything the way they tell us to frame it. Years ago, there used to be investigative reporting, and there there was a gentleman that did the news back then, Dan Rather, and when he retired, he said there's no more investigative journalism. He said we can't even go on the air and say what we investigated. The only investigations that are done today are investigating the ones who won't parrot what they're told to say. How about senators and congressmen? Do you really think they're the voice of us? See, they're supposed to be our representatives. That's who they are supposed to represent. They're supposed to represent us. Do you think they are, or are they puppets? See, they can't be elected without the same corporate billionaire dollars that I just mentioned owns the uh, news medias. And in 2010, our Supreme Court ruled that they could give as much money through their PACs to the, either political party. They could do what all they wanted to. 
And so they have lobbyists that lavishly supply gifts and money to both political parties. And incredibly, it's legal. I think if you're going to legalize lobbyists, then you might as well legalize prostitution because you know what? It's exactly the same thing. Well, maybe the prostitutes are a little more honest. At least you know where they're coming from. Guys, this, the stuff that I'm talking about now, and I know a lot of people, when I do talk about this, they get upset. The only purpose I'm, I have here is to say that before we can walk in the truth, then it's probably going to be necessary to see that maybe we haven't been walking in the truth. Recognizing the lie is the first step to coming into the truth. And I'm not speaking from someone, uh, as someone who's pointing any fingers at anybody because uh, this was me. I had a, poli- a, a particular political persuasion that I lived by for years and years and years and thought I was absolutely right. And I was following something that uh, most of the church world that I was a part of was following. And so I thought I was doing the right thing. And then one day you stop and you look and you say like, gee, maybe, just maybe, this isn't the truth. So, and I'm not saying it matters what side of the fence you're on. I'm not registered to either political party. And I think I've mentioned before, I think they're both the same, you know, it's, the, it's just flip sides of the same coin. You know, I just mentioned the Supreme Court justices and the decisions that they make, and I'm talking about eating from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil because much of the morals and ethics that have upset a lot of us have been dictated to us by laws. A lot of them coming out of the states and then they find their way where? to the Supreme Court. And over the years, we felt like, well, if I just get the right president elected and he appoints the right Supreme Court justices, then all this morals and ethics that I don't like is going to be corrected. But I think maybe we're looking to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life when we do that. And I thought, you know, for years, I thought, well, I'm on the right side of this. If I can just get a Republican, because, again, that's what I was kind of told years ago. And matter of fact, recently I heard somebody say that we're in the mess today because Christians don't get involved in politics. And I'm thinking, like, really? Did you forget? I mean, in the late 70s, Jerry Falwell started the Moral Majority. And all of us as Christians joined the Republican Party and because that's what we were told to do. That was the right side of things. And we were told to do that, and we were led to... I remember being in a meeting one time in a church with a bunch of uh, elders of the church, and they said that if we get Ronald Reagan elected as president, he's going to put in the right Supreme Court justices, and then we're going to overturn abortion. And... No matter how you feel about these issues, abortion or some of the other issues that we might talk about, 
what side you're on. I mean, you can be opposed to abortion. I am. But you can certainly have compassion for some young, poor girl who has no clue, no support system in her life, nobody there backing her at all. And she's forced to make a decision out of fear and shame. And she makes that decision. I don't think we need to condemn her. I think we need to try to help her as much as we can. So you can still be opposed to abortion, but you can still have compassion for the people involved. But anyway, my point in this was people that are opposed to abortion. And again, I'm opposed to abortion. How did it come about? Well, we look back to Roe versus Wade and we say, well, that decision brought abortion on. Well, how do you think that happened? The vote was seven to two. Richard Nixon, a Republican, appointed four Supreme Court justices. Three of them voted in favor of abortion. And the other two were Republican appointees by Eisenhower. So the reason we have abortion today is because of the, quote, conservative court that voted it in, allowed it. And then we were told, as I just mentioned, that if we uh, elected Ronald Reagan, that then we were going to get the right Supreme Court justices. So the case did come up. In 1992, the case came up regarding abortion. And I think it was five to four the vote. And you know who the deciding vote was? Ronald Reagan's appointee, Kennedy. And again, I'm just saying this so that you understand that we're looking to some political parties And both of those parties are eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm not saying that every politician that's in there is evil. No, I don't mean that. There can be, I don't think when Jesus chastised the Pharisees that every Pharisee was a bad guy. I think he was speaking against the system and saying this system is evil. And why are you looking to that? He called it a den of thieves. And he asked, why are you looking to that? Why are you not looking to God, my father? Why are you not looking to me? Many of us have, as have recently seen, and again, how you feel one side or the other about this is your business. We had a guy that kneeled in front of the flag rather than standing for the national anthem. And we said that's disrespectful to the flag, which is fine. But we had a Supreme Court justices that ruled in 1988 that you could burn the flag, that that was perfectly okay. And the vote on that, do you know what pushed that vote over the top? Two Republican nominees, Scalia and Kennedy. It was That, again, was a five to four vote. And I'm, I'm trying to say that we can't look to this. I, I, some of you be opposed that are listening to same-sex marriage. The only way that came about, again, was a close vote. And the vote to put it over the top was a Republican appointee. The Equality Act, we'll worry about that being passed right now. And we're saying, oh my God, if they pass that. Well, the test case came up a year ago insofar as the workplace... And that got approved. And you know who the deciding vote was? Donald Trump's appointee, Gorsuch. Do you think that it matters to Jesus whether Democrats or Republicans in office? You don't think he's going to move by his spirit irrespective of who is? In my lifetime, I... You know, and I know I'm getting older now. 
let's see. In the 60s, we had eight years of Democrats. Then we had eight years of Republicans, four more of Democrat, then 12 of Republicans. So we've bounced back and forth. And, you know, we say today how divided we are. It's never been like this. Well, I guess people forgot the 60s when there was rioting and protesting and people with their odds in each other. The racism was at its height. And do you know that in the 60s and 70s, there was one tremendous Holy Ghost move of God? In spite of all that, do you think Jesus cared? Like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like the Wizard of Oz, I've got to be up there pulling strings because these people are fighting Democrats and Republicans are against you. He doesn't care. He's going to move by his spirit, irrespective of human government. And there were an incredible amount of people who came to Christ during the 60s and 70s in that period that they called, you know, the drug culture and free love and all the other things, the abortion issue and all the other things that were going on. And God says, no, I'm going to sovereignly move. And it wasn't about any man ministry. It wasn't about any religious denomination. It was a sovereign move of God that crossed all over that. And it didn't even take place in the churches. It took place. We had 300 people at a Valley's Steakhouse. Just people coming together to talk about Jesus, to share their testimony about what Jesus had done in their lives. Do you realize that When Jesus came, where did the move of God take place? The first one that precedes Jesus, John the Baptist, was he in the height of the religious area, Jerusalem? No, he purposely was out in the wilderness. And if you wanted to find out what God was doing, you had to leave that spot to come out where he was. And he was saying the kingdom of God is coming. When Jesus came and ministered, did he go ministered in the political slash religious hierarchy of his day in the place where they were? No. As a matter of fact, he stayed out of there as much as he could. He went into the highways. He went into the byways. He went where the people were. He didn't use that centralized auction of his day. One time the apostles came to him because uh, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus went right back at them and called them out for who they are. And the apostles pulled them over to the curb and told them, well, Jesus, don't you understand who you just offended? See, they were looking to them as their leaders. And Jesus told them, don't you understand that they're blind guys leading the blind? You see, Jesus came to set us free with the truth. But he came to people who were bound up in a lie. And he was opening their eyes so that they might step into the truth. Well, let me wrap this up by trying to be encouraging. There's only so much we can talk about to see. It'll drive you crazy. But I just mentioned to you about the 60s and the 70s. And I want to say this. And I've been, you know, I pray more now as I've gotten older I guess because I'm retired and I have the time, but I pray more. And as I've been praying, God has let me know, or he spoke to me, I believe. And when I say God spoke to me, it's not audible voices. It's something you feel in your spirit. 
that he's not going to skip over any generation. He's going to move today in spite of what you see, vision and the chaos going on in the world. Don't put your eyes on that. Put your eyes on him. Because just as I just mentioned years ago, there was a powerful move of God. He's going to do it again. And our God is going to do it with young people. He is going to reach out with them in a sovereign, powerful move of God. Irrespective of what anyone else says, he's going to do it. God's not going to let these, he's not going to let the enemy have our young people. I think, I think they're going to be so far powerfully filled with the presence of God, with the power of God, and with his very character in them, that you're going to see incredible manifestations. And I also believe this. God has kept a lot of these young, unchurched people. And, you, and we point our fingers at them and say, look what's going on in their lives. That, do you realize that he sometimes has kept them purposely from the, quote, church world? Because he didn't want them getting indoctrinated in a lot of the stuff that can just cause more harm than help them? God's going to open their eyes to the truth and he's going to he's going to be the good shepherd that goes before him. He will guide them, he will direct them, he will encourage them and he knows how to correct them. If he has to discipline them, he knows how to do it. But it's not going to be man that's eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's going to be telling them how to live. It's going to be their God that redeems them. And he's going to do it in love. He's going to go before them and he's going to say, follow me. And they're going to do it. He's not going to allow them to get sucked into a whole system that has trapped the world in bondage. He'll set them free. God is opening our hearts and our minds and our souls to his truth. As we receive it, believe it, and walk in it, he will in fact set us free. Real freedom will find out what it's all about. He's going to move among them, and he's even going to move among people. There are a lot of people out there that think, well, I knew God at one time, but I've gotten away from God. And I've really screwed up in my life. You don't know what I've done. I've turned my back on God. Well, you know what? He's never turned his back on you. He will never leave you, forsake you. Fact is, he knew what you were going to do before you did it. You screwed up? Join the club. Think it was any different for any one of us? This is not a time to be wallowing in some sinkhole of discouragement, despair, and self-pity. It's not a matter of where you've been. It's where you're going. It's where he's taking you to. Screwing up isn't the problem. It's living out of it. It's listening to the enemy of your soul, that con man who was only so happy to tell you what a screw up you are. You're going to believe that lie? Or are you going to listen to what Jesus has to say about you? You were created in his image and likeness. You're a son and a daughter of the Most High God. You're the apple of his eye. He's the lover of your soul. If you were the only one on earth, then you were the one he would have been scourged for, beaten for, spit upon, and horribly crucified to redeem just you. Gang, I don't care how crazy they say and how much chaos or division there are in the world. At such a time as this, it's God raised us up. He's calling all of us. 
Rise up, straighten up, stand up, follow me. He'll restore all the years that we've been wandering. He'll heal every soul. And he'll turn our sadness and our mourning into laughter. And all he says is, follow me and eat from the tree of life. You know, I'm going to leave it up, leave it off there and we'll pick it up the next time. And thank you so much for listening to me. And I know I was ranting a little bit today and I just, when I talk like this, I'm only hoping you understand. All I want us all to do is put our eyes on Jesus. Don't be looking to the problem for the solution because only he offers the words of eternal life. Thank you. God bless.